Six months ago, we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And here's what Mark began his book with, these words. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's fascinating about this book is that we have not heard someone confess that Jesus is the Christ until we get to chapter 15. Those words do not pass from anyone's lips until we get to chapter 15. In between chapter 1 and chapter 15, we've heard the Father affirm Jesus as the Son of God. We've heard the demons say He's the Son of God. But not until we get to chapter 15 do we hear a human being say, Yes, He's the Son of God. And it's unlikely human being. It's a soldier, a Roman soldier, an executioner, who finally, look at this passage, Mark 15, verse 39, the centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. He says it. It's interesting that he's the first to say it. It's not a Jew. It, it's a Roman soldier. It's a Gentile. It's a person, a part of the execution squad. I mean, you might expect to hear him use the word Son of God, but he'd only use those words when it came to, to Caesar. They were taught to confess that Caesar was the Son of God. But here he's seen something that so blows him away that he's got to say that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, here's what I want you to see this morning. The evidence was just way too much for him to ignore. It was too much for him to ignore. I mean, what, what he sees in just a few hours absolutely shakes the foundation of this man's life. You know, you ever, you know, maybe you really like somebody and, and the more the evidence piled up, the more you thought, you know what? Not who I thought they were. Some of you are old enough to remember our only president disgraced to resign in the middle of office, Richard Nixon. I guarantee you there's a lot of folks in here. Nixon had a, a reputation as a wholesome, all-American, conservative kind of guy. And it was pretty hard that slowly the evidence mounted. Maybe you remember the Watergate hearings. Maybe you remembered hearing the secret tapes. Maybe you remembered what his language was like and what he, how he talked about people. And, and despite the fact you might have voted for him and you liked him, at some point the evidence was just way too much to ignore to go, you know what, this guy doesn't deserve to be our president. Maybe you do better with a sports analogy. Maybe 20 years ago when he was 18 years old, you remember when Alex Rodriguez showed up in Major League Baseball. He was a physical specimen, a phenomena. Everyone knew from the beginning that he would probably be one of the greatest players in the history of baseball. Everybody knew that. And when he first signed with the Seattle Mariners, he was a hero. He kept a persona that was clean cut. And yet, now we see him 38 years old. Maybe nobody today more disgraced in sports in our country. And maybe you liked him at first, but every scandal, every drug test, finally the evidence was just way too much to ignore and you had to go, you know what? He wasn't who I thought he was. Maybe you've experienced this on the positive side. I, I think of an athlete I didn't really like at the beginning. I really didn't like Tim Tebow. Like Jesus says, what good could come out of Florida? You know what I'm saying? I mean, the guy, you know, I mean, comes out, he just, he just, he just seems to be too good to believe. You get sick of the announcers that were in love with him in every game, you know. But you know, the more you watch the old boy, the more you start thinking, you know, he's for real. The more you see him stand up for his faith, 
go to the NFL, be ping pong between teams, yet never complain, always talk about Jesus. You know, I got a friend who lives in Gainesville, Florida, who had a lot of encounters with Tim Tebow, and he said, you know, he really is the real deal. And what, what, what you say? And, and so maybe with him, finally the evidence was too much to ignore, despite the fact he played at the University of Florida. You finally had to say, this is an incredible guy and a great testimony for the Christian faith. And so here's what goes on with this, this centurion. The evidence just begins to be overwhelming. It was too much for him. This hardened executioner. I mean, he had seen hundreds of people die. The, the cross was not unusual for him. But there was something so different about Jesus, he finally got to exclaim in the first confession from the words of a man in the book of Mark, truly this was the Son of God. Let's go to the story. It's an incredible story. Let's watch what he watched. Mark chapter 15. Let's start in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now listen, when they executed a man, the Roman government believed that capital punishment was a deterrent to crime. And so they would execute him in a very public place. And when they would walk to that place, the way to the cross was not the most direct route. It was very indirect because they wanted as many people as possible to see the humiliation of a criminal. And so finally, Jesus, after all the scourging, cannot carry his cross. And this man named Simon from Cyrene, from Cyprus, comes and helps him. Now, interesting here that there's these two guys named Alexander and Rufus. Fascinating point. Where was the gospel of Mark first sent? It was sent to Rome. Tradition says the reason that Mark mentions these two guys that were the sons of Simon is that Simon was so affected by Jesus that he became a Christian and his sons did. In fact, if you read the book of Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, you will see a man named Rufus who Paul commends. And many people make the connection with Simon. So the cross didn't just impact um, the centurion, it impacted this man named Simon. Look at verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The Talmud says that there was a group of Jewish women who at every crucifixion would offer this, this mild sedative, just a very mild sedative, to maybe take a little bit of the edge off. Jesus does not want any of the edge taken off. He wants to be in his full faculties as he faces the cross. So he turns it down. And then it says, and they crucified him. Interesting, that's really the only part of the physical pain that Mark mentions. They crucified him. Crucifixion was known as a excruciating death. It was a um, humiliating way to die. It was saved for just the worst criminals. I mean, just the nails are enough to scare you, a half inch wide, seven inch long. More like a railroad spike than a nail. It was an awful way to die. But again, Mark doesn't really emphasize that. And then he throws in a little line here, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see each would who, what each would get. Soldiers are bored, they've gone through quite a few crucifixions. Not uncommon for them to play a game right there at the foot of the cross. 
And then go to verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read this way, the king of the Jews. You see, it was common to put the charge against the criminal above his cross. But being king of the Jews is not a criminal charge. You don't kill somebody for that. Even the Jewish people knew that was not their charge against Jesus. Their charge was he was a blasphemer. But Pilate is pretty ticked off. He's been forced into a corner in this crucifixion. He knew Jesus was innocent. And he tries to spare Jesus until the Jewish leaders play their trump card. What was their trump card? If you don't kill this man, we'll report you to Caesar. And Pilate was already in enough trouble with Caesar. He didn't need anything else. And so now in a sort of in-your-face move, Pilate's seeking some petty revenge, says, I'll just put what I want to put up here. He was the king of the Jews. And the Jews go and complain. He says, I have put, I have written what I've written. And he writes it in three different languages. They're none too happy. And then in verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him. You know, in our, our day, we would probably use the term two terrorists. One on his right and one on his left. What's this? This is just a further way to embarrass Jesus. Not only kill him on a cross, but kill him like he's a criminal, like anybody else in between these two awful robber rebels, terrorists. And then look what happens. Those who pass by, what a vivid word, hurled. They hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And guess who joins in? In the same way, the chief priests and the leaders, teachers of the law, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. And then, guess who else joins in? The two criminals, those crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. Now listen, we understand that, that Peter is the source for the book of Mark. And when Peter remembers what happens, what stands out in Peter's mind, obviously, was not the excruciation of the cross. It was the mockery of God's people. What he really remembers is here is God in the flesh. And his, his creation is mocking him. That's amazing. And, and even more amazing is he takes it. And we read last week in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus said he could have called legions of angels. We added it up. It was 72,000 angels he could have called. Twelve legions. Now we sing a song. We used to anyway. He could have called what? 10,000 angels. But I guess that sounds better than he could have called 72,000 angels. All right? I mean, you know what? This is the moment of mockery, of abuse. They're spitting on him. They're making fun of him. I mean, what you expect is for God to split the earth wide open and swallow them up in the pit of hell. But he doesn't. Because he doesn't want you to go to hell. In fact, hell comes to Jerusalem. Keep reading with me. 
Look at the next verses. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, hell is a place of darkness, utter darkness, the Bible says. Hell comes to the earth. But you know the worst thing about hell? The worst thing about hell is God's not there. And that's the worst thing about the cross for Jesus. It's for the first time in all of eternity, he looks around and his father's not there. He's never faced anything, even the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's at the point of death without his father. And now he faces it and he cries out, my God, my God. Only time in all the gospels he calls him God and not father. My God, where are you? Look at verse 35. When some of those standing there near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. It was a popular belief that Elijah would come along with the Messiah. So again, they're still mocking. Oh, yeah, yeah. If he's really the Messiah, we know Elijah's about to show up. And then we see the climax, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. At three o'clock in the afternoon, when the shofar is sounded for the execution of the lambs for the Passover, at that exact moment, the Passover lamb of all time dies. What a moment. He cries out, We know from the other Gospels, he cries out, it is finished. It's a one-word cry that means we've are paid in full. It's it's the word that a a great marathon runner would scream at the end of, uh, of the marathon. When he finally calls the finishing tape, he would cry these very words, it is finished. I've completed it. I've run the race. And now Jesus, after he's gone through the darkness of hell itself, he now is able to say, it is finished. And then God wants to add an exclamation point to what has happened here. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And here we go. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Wow, what an amazing moment. We know from Gospel of Matthew, there's an earthquake. The temple quakes. This curtain, it wasn't, guys, it's more, it's, it's such a thick curtain. It's more like a wall. It's torn, not from the bottom up like a man would do it. It's torn from the top down so they knew God had done it. And listen, here we go back to our point today. This was evidence for this man that was too much to ignore. It was just absolutely... Listen, this centurion had never heard Jesus preach a sermon. He had never watched one of his mighty miracles. He had never listened to the parables. He's only seen the way he dies. Oh, more than likely, he's been there from the arrest, through the mockery of the trials, through when the soldier sucker punches him, through the abuse, to the spit, to the, the walk, to the cross, to the darkness, through the earthquake. He's been there through it all. Some translations put two things here. He heard 
him cry out, and he saw how he died, and then he confesses. What's he seen, guys? What's he heard? There's something that's happened here that's unlike anybody else he's ever seen crucified. I mean, he's a hardened professional. This is what he does for a living. But he sees the one being crucified look to heaven and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He sees Jesus look at the terrorist who's been put beside him, who has mocked him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And in the end, he hears Jesus cry, it's finished. I've completed the race. And he understands that Jesus not only has died in the most amazing, loving way possible, but he has died with purpose. And he can't get over it. Let me give you some things that I don't think you can ignore from this story, okay? Let's just look at a few things rather quickly. First of all, I I don't think you can ignore the, the divine prophecy here. You know, we read all these details and we don't think much about it, but some of these little details are are, are really fulfillment of prophecy. From David's prophecy that they would divide up his garments, to the psalmist's prophecy that he would turn down the vinegar that was offered to him to drink, to Isaiah's prophecy that he would... um, he would uh, be crucified with the transgressors. I mean, there's prophecy written all over this. It's amazing, guys, that a thousand years, some is a thousand years old, some six or seven hundred years old, and yet somehow in Scripture, if you put it all together, you could, you could really put together everything from his arrest to his trial simply with a line of prophecy. It's an amazing proof of who Jesus was. You know, the Bible, when they want to prove to Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah, what they always go back to is, look at all this prophecy. It was said about him 700 years ago, and it's exactly what happened. And so divine prophecy, something can blow you away there. I think the big thing, though, that hits me studying is divine darkness. I've never really grasped the darkness until studying the last few weeks. In the Old Testament, darkness is symbolic of the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is threatened throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is an expression of the day of God's wrath. The day of the Lord is the day when God is going to pour out his judgment on the earth. Now listen to some of the prophecies of it. If you have your Bible, turn over with me to the book of Joel. Let's start in Joel chapter 1, verse 15, as he talks about the day of the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. And then look at chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse, verse 10. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Flip over to that next small minor prophet, Amos chapter 5, verse 20. 
Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. And then one more, a few books over. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 14. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. The cry of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Because what are we seeing here in this three hours of pitch blackness? Now, some try to explain it away. Some say it's an eclipse. When have you seen a three-hour eclipse? In fact, even this time of year would be a time of year where an eclipse would be impossible. Some have said, even some movies portray, that it was a sandstorm that came over that just sort of made things seem dark. But listen, guys, this is not from nature. This is directly from God. This is a divine darkness. It is symbolic that the day of the Lord has arrived where God will bring judgment upon the earth and God will allow his wrath to be poured out. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus was praying about last week as we studied, of Jesus not wanting to take the cup. Remember the analogy we gave that there was a bridge a thousand miles wide, not a bridge, a dam a thousand miles wide and a thousand miles high. And all of the wrath of God has been stored up behind that. Every sinful thing you've done, I've done, everybody before us has done, everybody after us has done, every sinful, awful, dirty abuse is held behind this incredible dam. And now we see when the dam cracks and the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath, the day of the Lord arrives and Jesus takes it all. He takes it all. Yes, hell came to Jerusalem that day. Divine darkness. And then that leads us to the next one, divine separation. And we see that cry, my God, my God, where are you? What are you doing? It's not just a rhetorical question. Jesus knows what's going on. Habakkuk says that your eyes are so pure, they cannot look upon evil. Isaiah says, it's your sins that separate you from God. Because Jesus is experience, he's experiencing here what almost took his life in Gethsemane. He was at the point of death in Gethsemane just thinking about it. And now it kills him. Guys, for a guy to die six hours into crucifixion is very unusual. Some people would stay crucified for a week. That's why they sent the guys to break the legs, to make sure they died. My friends, Jesus was not killed by the spikes in his hands. Jesus was killed by the separation of God and the darkness of the wrath of God that was poured upon him. And can you imagine this separation? Because the more someone can hurt you is the more you love them. The longer and deeper the love, the deeper the pain. I mean, you might have met somebody yesterday and they say, she don't like you and doesn't bother you at all. Or you might just get some message from someone, you know, criticizing you and you go, well, you know, you know, 
Everybody's criticized. I'm okay with that. I really don't mind what they say about me. But you get rejected by your parents. You get rejected by your spouse. You get rejected by a friend that you've known over a long period of time. Man, that hurts deeply. It's incredible hurt. He goes, listen to me. Jesus and God have existed together. I, I can't even fathom this. For eternity. And, and not an imperfect love, but imperfect love. You talking about a deep hurt? It doesn't get any deeper than this. And it's that divine separation that points out to us, this is divine love. I think what blew the centurion away is what blows us away in this scene, is is we've never seen love like this. He saw how he died. He dies with forgiveness on his lips. He dies with reaching out to people who mock him. He takes upon himself the wrath of God. He drinks the cup of wrath so that you and I will never have to drink it. He's forsaken by God so that none of us will ever be forsaken by God. God turns his back on Jesus so that he would never have to turn his back on us. My friend, that is divine love. No human being has ever loved that way. You know, often we might even say from this pulpit, you know, the problem is you don't love God, and that is a problem. But I think there's a bigger problem than saying to you and I, you don't love God. The bigger problem is you've not recognized how much God loves you. Because if you ever get that, he gets you. And that brings us to the next awesome deal. We get divine access. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Guys, there had always been this division between God and man in the place where God lived was in the temple, in the center of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, which was surrounded by such a thick curtain that only one man could go in once a year and he was scared to death. Tradition says he would go in with a rope tied around his ankle and bells on his ankle because they were so afraid he might go in and be struck dead by God because no man wanted to be in the presence of God. When you say in the Old Testament, you need a personal relationship with God, they say, forget you. I I don't want to get close to the dude. I've seen him strike too many people dead. And so the high priest goes in with his rope and these bells. Now why? Because if he struck dead, are you going in after him? I'm not. You're pulling that dude out. And now it's wide open. the, The symbolism is incredible. Now... The Holy of Holies is open to you and I every moment, every day. And guess who's the first one to walk in? It's a crusty, old Roman centurion who walks in with a confession on his lips. So there's incredible access. And then one more point here, and the the centurion didn't have this, we have this today, is divine confirmation. He didn't get this one, but we do. Look at Romans 1 verse 4. And Jesus Christ our Lord was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised him from the dead by means of the Holy Spirit. My friends, if the centurion can be blown away by the evidence he had, you and I have more evidence. Not only do we know everything that happened and how he died and his final cry, just like the centurion, we have the final confirmation, the divine confirmation that yes, he is the Son of God because three days later we believe he resurrected from the dead. 
So, there's a lot going on in a very few verses. So my question for you today is, will you avoid him or will you confess him? Will you ignore him or will you confess him? Now, let's just slow down here for a minute, okay? We need to think just a few minutes. I want you to know this. We've studied this the last few weeks. Satan did everything in his power to keep Jesus from the cross. He tempted him in the wilderness. He tempted him by Simon Peter. He tempted him in the Gethsemane. His, his, his main temptation of Jesus is, if, if I can keep Jesus away from the cross, I can keep salvation from mankind. He did everything he could to keep Jesus away from the cross. And here's what I want you to know this morning. He will do everything he can to keep you and me from thinking about the cross. He'll do everything he can to keep you away from the cross. Because he knows. If somehow in your life you're just so busy, you ignore the cross, or you come to church today just with an agenda to get your checklist over, you know, and you're already thinking about where you're going to eat lunch and what you're going to do this afternoon, you know, and what you need to do back at the, back at the office. If, if somehow in the midst of everything we do, we can just ignore it, you know? I mean, just act like it's not there. Oh, we know it's there, but act like it's not there. I mean, just, just sort of avoid really, really thinking about the implications of, you know, he loves me this much. What's he asking out of me? You see, if you get this, you don't go, uh, God, how, how much do I need to give to you, you know? What, what I need to do, the, the, the questions completely change. It's not legalism. It's not law. It's love. And so now you say, God, what could I do for you, man? You've been so incredible to me. You've loved me so much. But if you don't want to change, then ignore this. So you, either you avoid it and ignore it or you confess him. And today, my challenge for you is one way or the other, before you leave this building, will you confess Jesus as the Son of God? If this centurion, with as little as he knew, could do it, could you do it today?